Right now, I heard this phrase somewhere along the way, uh, and I don't know, it gets thrown around a lot in business books and management books, but it says this, a system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. A system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And I want you to think about that with me. I'm a fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, Year after year, championships. And you know why? Coach Saban has this key phrase. The process. The process. It's all about the process. The process is the system that he's put in place to develop young men and churn out wins and make the college football landscape love to hate him, all right, to which I say roll tight, right? It's true in football. A system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, but, but it's true in other places too. It's true in business. You think about a, a company or a small business that year after year somehow finds a way to turn a profit. They didn't do that by accident. They've got processes and systems in place that consistently churn out results. Best-selling authors are the same way. How do they end up on the New York Times bestseller list every time? they got a process in place. It's true for families. Why do some families thrive and some families get stuck in dysfunction? they got a process in place that leads them to health. And it's true even, I would suggest, for churches. Churches that are consistently vibrant and healthy have a process in place of developing disciples and empowering them to make a difference in the world. That's what it means. A system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. But then, sometimes, those systems that work so well all of a sudden come to a surprising halt. I'm thinking of like power grids, which are supposed to be weatherproof, reliable. You can't, hey, we live in Texas. This is an energy state. And all of a sudden, it comes crashing down. The system that was designed to never fail, fails. Businesses, of course, processes that got you to success, all of a sudden are meaningless in a changing environment with pandemics and new regulations and all sorts of different economic realities. Families are the same way. Your marriage seems to be going good one day, and the next is on the rocks. What gives? Why do processes which normally lead to guaranteed results, all of a sudden change. Well, I would suggest to you the answer depends on the system in question. But in any case, and in every case, when a system that normally leads to one result turns out another one, you got to stop and ask, what's going on? And this morning, I want to talk to you about one of these systems one of these massive failures where one-time results led to one-time failures. The system I'm thinking of is the practice of crucifixion as it was practiced in the Roman Empire. See, crucifixion had been designed for a very... Y'all got weird on me just now. Y'all okay? All right, okay, just making sure we're hanging in there. All right, crucifixion in the Roman Empire had a very particular purpose. They didn't invent crucifixion. There's historical evidence for people getting nailed to trees all over the ancient world, in Africa, in Asia, and in Europe. Many people think the Romans even learned it from the Carthaginians, who had a particular fondness for it. But wherever it came from, 
the Romans had taken the system of crucifixion and had heightened it to its most cruel form. For the Romans, crucifixion was often reserved for those criminals who were particularly seditious and threatened the overall peace of the empire. People like bandits who threatened a sense of law and order. People like rebels who drew people around them and threatened to actually overthrow the government. And of course, revolting slaves. And the purpose of crucifixion was clear. They were going to deter future acts of rebellion by publicly humiliating the victim and inflicting so much pain that nobody in their right mind would ever do what that person did. And history gives us great examples of how this played out. Maybe you know the famous 1960s movie about the slave revolt led by a runaway slave named Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Spartacus uh, led an uprising against the Romans, and the Roman general Crassus uh, in the first century B.C. absolutely stomped it down and ground it out. And to make sure that nobody ever had the same idea that Spartacus had, he had 6,000. Think about this. 6,000 revolting slaves crucified along the road to Rome. 130 years later, the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem with his battalion of Roman centurions, and they absolutely destroyed the city in 70 AD. Burned it to the ground. The Jewish historian Josephus, who had seen the event, said that they had crucified so many people, there, weren't enough, there wasn't enough room for the crosses. This is crazy. There wasn't enough room for the crosses, and there weren't enough crosses for the bodies. The German historian of religion, Martin Hengel, said, Crucifixion was a means of waging war and securing peace, of wearing down rebellious cities under siege, of breaking the will of conquered peoples, and of bringing mutinous troops or unruly provinces under control. You know what we do today? We drop a bomb. Total war, obliterated, nothing left standing. That is the Roman equivalent of an atomic bomb. And so you can understand that if that was their purpose, to crush the will of a people, to render rebels humble, then the process would have to be pretty severe. And it was. It began with a public flogging they'd chain the victim to a pole, and they'd use a whip with lots of different strands coming off of it, and on the tip of the strands were either pieces of metal or bone, so that when they lashed the victim, it tore skin off. And this actually served a purpose. It was actually a kindness in a way, because the extreme loss of blood that the victim experienced meant that they wouldn't have to suffer as long once they finally got nailed to the cross. And they did get nailed to the cross. Sometimes they were bound, tied up. But most of the time, they had nails driven through their hands and their feet. And they were left to stand on a tiny little peg. Of course, this process of hanging was the, probably the most excruciating of it all. Because over time, it became harder and harder to breathe. You basically suffocated there on the cross. That's the experience of pain. Then there's the shame that kind of went along with it. That there you are on a tree, 
naked for the whole world to see. And there are people there to see. That's the point. You're a public spectacle. They're humiliating you before your society. When you died, they wouldn't even take down your body. They'd let the birds pick at you until there was nothing left. That was the Roman system of crucifixion. And it produced, as you can expect, a very particular result. You didn't want to be crucified, so you kept your mouth shut and you fell in line. That Pax Romana, the Roman peace that we all hear about and see in the wonderful movies about gladiators, was secured by the cross, perfectly designed to accomplish a purpose that it had secured a thousand, hundred thousand times until one day. A system designed and refined to secure peace, prosperity, through the public humiliation and excruciating pain inflicted on a victim, all of a sudden failed. Didn't work. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus and his crucifixion, the purpose behind it. The process was basically the same as every other crucifixion. There's, the Bible's clear. There is nothing all that particular about Jesus' experience on Good Friday. Yeah, he was betrayed by his friend, but who doesn't experience some betrayal now and then? Yeah, he was publicly flogged. What victim of crucifixion isn't? Yeah, he was made to carry his cross and couldn't, probably because he was so weak from that loss of blood, but... Who hadn't experienced that before? And then he was nailed to a tree, like thousands of bandits, rebels, and slaves had been nailed to trees before. What's so particular about Jesus? It wasn't that he died on a cross, but that after he died on a cross, he rose from the grave. That's what rendered this system that had been so perfectly designed to produce a particular result a failure. And I want to talk to you about that failure. Because when Peter was given an opportunity to stand up and tell people about Jesus, that's where he went. Now, Mike read it for us a little bit ago. If you've got a Bible, you may want to look at it again in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter gives us three reasons why the cross, which had before been a guaranteed way of securing peace, had all of a sudden become a massive failure. The first thing he says is the cross failed because, listen to this, there'd never been anybody like Jesus crucified before. Never anybody like him. The Romans reserved crucifixion for rebels, bandits, and slaves. But listen to how Peter describes him. Verse 22, Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Which one of his miracles do you think they crucified him for? Was it when he walked into town and saw a blind man crying out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Was it for him? Was it for the man with a withered hand? Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue. Which, which one of his miracles 
did they crucify him for? No, that's nonsense. He wasn't crucified for his miracles. He was crucified because he was a threat. In fact, in the Gospels, we see reason after reason why the Jewish establishment turned their backs on Jesus. They had a theological problem with him. We read about it in John 10. After Jesus healed a blind and paralyzed man on a Sabbath, they came to him and said, Who do you think you are that you're going to break God's law and heal somebody on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, Well, hey guys, don't you know, my father's been working until now, and now I'm joining in, and I'm getting to work with him. And John tells us in John chapter 10, I think maybe verse 14 or something, he said, And for this reason they sought to kill him, because not only did he heal somebody on the Sabbath, but because he made himself out to be God. They had a theological problem with him. Jews also had a political problem with him. That after he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in a town called Bethany right outside Jerusalem, the uproar was so crazy. I mean, if they had a, had a church like ours, it would have been as packed as ours is today. People everywhere shouting, cheering, oh, praise God what Jesus just did for his friend Lazarus. And meanwhile, the guys in Jerusalem are together for damage control. The whole Jewish Sanhedrin, the whole council that governed Jerusalem are together trying to figure out what they're going to do. And they, they actually say, what should we do now? If he keeps up with miracles like this, everybody's going to believe in him, and the Romans are going to come in here, and they're going to take away our place as the Sanhedrin, who had minor, I mean, it's like minor local control over the Jewish affairs in Jerusalem. They're going to take away our place, and they're going to obliterate our nation. We've got to kill this guy. But really, at the end of the day, it wasn't the theological or political problem they had with him. But it was a personal problem. You said in John 15, the night of his betrayal, he said, if I hadn't come and spoken to these people, they wouldn't have known the truth. But now they know the truth. And they hated the Father, and they hated me. Jesus wasn't crucified for any of his miracles. He was crucified because of the personal hatred that mankind had against God. That's it. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on the basis of trumped-up charges because his enemies burned with jealousy at him. But even then, surprisingly, he didn't seek revenge. He didn't try to lie his way out of it. He didn't try to defend himself and tell the authorities, these people are telling lies about me. Instead, he didn't even open his mouth, but went to the cross willingly like a lamb led to slaughter. And because of that, one of the criminals who was hanging up next to him said to the other, We're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. There'd never been anybody crucified like Jesus. It was so obvious to everybody who was watching that when Jesus said, It's finished, and he breathed his last, and he gave up his spirit, the Roman centurion who was standing there said, Whoa! Luke 23, 47. Surely this man was innocent. Think about that. A Roman centurion who had crucified, I don't know how many hundreds of people. Notice something different about Jesus. There's never been a man like this before. Surely this man was innocent. Surely this man is the Son of God. Why did the cross fail? Because there had never been anybody like Jesus crucified before.
But Peter went on. Verse 23 said, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Oh, the cross didn't just fail because there had never been somebody like Jesus crucified before. It failed because Jesus' death was according to God's plan. I really like this one. Maybe one of my favorite points of the whole sermon. From a historical human perspective, we can clearly identify why Jesus died. I just gave you three reasons. A theological problem they had with him, a political problem, but mostly a personal problem. We can see it. Jealousy, hatred. We all know the drill. But from God's perspective, something else was at work. They thought, they thought that by crucifying Jesus, they'd snuff out his movement, just like every movement that had been snuffed out before. They thought nobody, no movement can survive something as humiliating and excruciating as a cross. But they didn't know that they were unwittingly fulfilling the plan that God had put in place before the world even began. I love it. It's the wonderful fulfillment of that great Old Testament phrase, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. He wasn't just one more rabble-rouser, freedom fighter, rebel, to suffer at the hands of the powerful empire. No. In his crucifixion, Jesus suffered the worst the world had to offer. Every lash of the whip, every breath clinging to life. But he wasn't a helpless victim. Instead, according to God's plan, he was there as a willing sacrifice. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. Nobody takes my life away from me, but I lay it down. Nobody who ever was crucified had the gall to take that kind of authority on themselves. They were not in charge of that process. They were getting carried along bit by bit by bit by bit. But overwhelmingly, after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples continued talking this way. And so we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 say, this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. John says it like this, And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his own Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim, guys. This was according to plan. God sent Jesus to die for our sins. Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in doing so, he demonstrated the great love that God had for us. Of course, all of this is in fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had foreseen. When he saw a man, and we call him, the suffering servant. And he shows up all out throughout the book of Isaiah like a recurring theme and character. This individual who is going to come anointed by God, chosen, specially set apart for a particular task. And the task wasn't to take up his throne and reign over his people in power, but his task was to suffer. Suffer so bad that in Isaiah 53, he sees through time. 
to what it would be like to be standing there before the crucified Jesus, like the people whose faces were contorted in anger as they spit upon him and hit him with their fists. And he said, he had no beauty that we should behold him. Nothing about his appearance that we should look at him. Nothing about crucifixion is pretty. And nothing about crucifixion says, this is somebody you ought to pay attention to. And so Isaiah says what everybody said. Well, he's just getting what he deserves. Clearly God is unhappy with him. He is punishing him for his sin. But amazingly, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 5, that he wasn't suffering for his own sins, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Why did the cross fail? Because it had all happened according to God's plan. It wasn't about the Romans, the Jews, who they thought could snuff out the movement. It was about what God intended to accomplish through Jesus. But of course, that's not all. The last one's most important. I lied to you earlier when I said that the second point was my favorite. I'm going to have to retract my previous statement, because look at verse 24. Peter continues, this man, we'll read 23 too, so we can get the full effect. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. But get this, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible. Impossible. You know the Greek word for impossible means it can't happen. All right? Impossible for him to be held in its power. See, the cross failed because death was powerless over Jesus. There had been nobody crucified like Jesus before, and it happened according to the plan of God. And so death's normal tricks, we're going to work on him. It's powerless over him. Why? Why? Death is the great equalizer. The one thing that eventually finds us all. Every one of us. Why was death powerless over Jesus? Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Death is what you get when you live your life apart from God. It's the wages of your sin. It's what you earn by living contrary to His desire for your life. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. Okay. So if sin and death are somehow related, that death is what we all get because we all live contrary to God's desire for our life, then if you take somebody like Jesus and try to fit him a round peg into a square hole or a square peg into a round hole, try to fit him into this mold, doesn't quite work that way because Jesus was a perfectly righteous man never deviated from God's desire for his life, perfectly obedient to God's law. And when death came to get what he was owed, the wages of sin is death, Jesus had a clean bill of health. Death couldn't put its bonds around him. I actually like the phrase that Paul, uh, Peter uses. He says the agony of death. You know, the, agony, the, the word agony there is the same word that's used to describe birth pangs. Y'all ever been witness to a birth? 
I have. I have two children, and my wife um, did not want to go, as they call it now, the natural route. She was looking forward to that epidural, okay? <laughs> and on my, on our, on when our son was born, I'll never forget this, because I saw a side of my wife I'll, I'll never want to see again. <laughs> uh, the, the anesthesiologist came in to, to insert this epidural, and of course they asked the dad to leave because you all know dads have weak stomachs. And so they send me out of the room, and she's crazy a little bit with pain, right? A little angry, seeing a side of my wife I've never seen before. And I'm thinking, wonderful, when I come back, she's going to be a totally new person. And I came back, and she was the same dragon lady that I had seen before. <laughs> Take my head off and everybody's with it. Now, this is a diversion from my sermon, but I need you to know this. That epidural didn't take. They had to do it again. And it still didn't work. So my wife was screaming and in pain. So get this. We got that image in our mind. Pain, like you've never seen before. And that's the word Peter uses in verse 24 to talk about death. The pain of death. And it's crazy a little bit because the pain of childbirth ushers in life. But the pain Peter's talking about is the pain that Jesus experienced leading to death. It's crazy. Death has, of course, physical connotations. It's the end of natural human life. You know, there's a death that goes deeper than that. There's a spiritual death. Uh, God told a man when he created him and put him in the garden, don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The death God was talking about wasn't just physical death, but it was separation from God. That's what each of us has to look forward to. On our own, in our natural condition, each one of us suffers under the wages of our sin and experience spiritual death. But not Jesus. Never been a man crucified like Jesus before, and death was powerless over him had no control over him. The bonds that were binding him were set free because it was impossible for Jesus to be bound by them. And so instead of suffering separation from God for all eternity, after three days in a borrowed tomb, up from the grave he arose. Victorious over death, hell, and the grave, so that now he can say, Fear not, I'm first and the last, and I love this, the living one. The living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Yeah, and so the system that had been so perfectly designed and refined to crush every form of dissent against Roman rule failed because it had never come up against a man like Jesus, a man who knew no sin, the Bible says, and yet for our sakes became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A man who took our sins in himself on his body on the tree and died to sin, so that you might live to righteousness. A man who died for all, so that all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. A man who described his own mission like this. The Son of Man came. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, here's the problem. People like me and you, we know that phrase. A system is perfectly designed to get the results 
it gets. We experience it in our own lives. We know the system gets the result it gets because we're the system, and the system's got a problem. Everything we keep getting is brokenness and mess. And so you're like me, probably. We try to resolve it, try to, I don't know, tweak the system, see if we can try harder, do better, or be different. But we can't. The system stays the same, and the results stay the same. But this Jesus, who lived that life, died that death, did so because God loves us. As we are, with a broken system, producing terrible, disastrous results, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And so in his love, he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God that you are held accountable to. And he died the death that you deserve. You, have you heard this before? If you've heard this, this before, raise your hand. If you've heard that God loves you enough to send his son, Jesus, to save you from sins. Have you heard that before? I just want to get a feel for this. Okay, because here's my fear. It's possible to lose a sense of wonder at what this day is all about. Because the cross is everywhere for us. It's over my shoulder. You've been looking at it all morning. We know about the cross. We know about the resurrection. We've heard about Jesus. We know He loves us and wants to give us a, a wonderful life. So explain to me how people who know a message inside and out, and, and you could probably share it with someone as well as I can, how come our lives are characterized by so much death? How come our relationships fray at a moment's notice? How come when our kids get on our nerves, we yell? How come, even though we know we're supposed to be truthful in our speech, if it means we're going to look bad, we're going to lie? Why, why do people who know a life-changing message continue to live as if they don't? Either the message is a lie, or we don't know it as well as we think we do. Problem is, like I said before, that Jesus came to die for people like you and me. People who are broken, who know the system leads to the same results every time, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so God loved us as we are, but too much to leave us as we are. And so He sent His only Son, purposed from before the foundation of time, that His Son would be born in just the right time that the Roman Empire existed, to use this terrible thing called crucifixion, so that we'd have this wonderful image in our minds, that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus suffered the full penalty, so that we don't have to. So that as he suffered on the cross, we might enter freely into the presence of God through the way that he opened up by his own body. So that we don't have to shrink back in fear from who God is as our righteous and just judge, but that we could come to him freely as a father and expect to receive from him every good thing. That is the promise and invitation of the gospel message. And people who are here today, you need to know that the invitation stands for you. 
The same message that Peter proclaimed and that the people responded by saying, Brothers, what must we do? It's the same message I'm trying to tell you this morning. I'm standing here on behalf of the crucified and yet risen Jesus to invite you to experience the forgiveness of sins that he died to give you and to let you know that there is a new way of life possible. The challenge, the challenge is what must we do? Peter says, repent of your sins. Turn your back on the brokenness of your life. Not just on the symptom, but on the cause. A life lived apart from the authority of God. To repent, turn your back, and to believe. To believe that Jesus is the only man like him who ever lived. The only man like him who ever died. Who died willingly, not as a victim, but so that you could experience forgiveness. To believe that in all your heart. The Apostle Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so this morning, would you repent? Would you believe? I believe in the moment that you do, the moment you make the commitment in your heart, to accept this message not as something that Christian preachers get to talk about once a year to a full church, but as the foundation of the whole world, foundation of your life. The moment you believe that, receive that, accept it in your heart, I believe that you experience this radical transformation where the death he died becomes the death he died for you and the life he lives becomes the kind of life that's on offer for you. Paul calls it a new creation kind of life. The same kind of life that Jesus experiences even now. This morning, if you know that you need that life, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to come down or raise your hand, but there is a card in the pew in front of you, and on there it has a checkbox. I'm committing to live my life for Jesus, or this is maybe even more important. I'm recommitting to live my life for Jesus. I'm coming back to what I used to know because I want my life to be different from this day forward. I want to experience a new system that leads to different results. Will you pray with me?